0: Welcome to EdSpark21, the podcast from Patel for Kids, dedicated to capturing conversations and spreading the word to accelerate the realization of 21st century deeper learning for every student. This episode, Patel for Kids CEO, Karen Garza, talks with Cindy Foley, Executive Deputy Director for Learning and Experience at Columbus Museum of Art.
1: At Patel for Kids, we are always looking for partners to help accelerate 21st century learning. Over the past two years, Cindy Foley from the Columbus Museum of Art has been exactly that. She's hosted our SOAR network of innovative school leaders at the museum, and she's also spoken to the members of our national network at our Ed Leader 21 annual event. I asked Cindy to join me for this podcast to discuss creativity, empathy, and other 21st century skills that overlap the world of education and art. Here's our conversation. Hi, Cindy. Hello, Karen. Thank you so much for being with me today. I always enjoy the opportunity to visit with you, so I'm, I've really been looking forward to this day. Me too. So, well, tell us a little bit about what you do, Cindy, mm-hmm. and also, want you after you do that, talk about how you the similarities you see between the transformation that is going on in school systems that um, we support and we work with together. Um, and how that correlates to some of the work that you're leading in the mu- at the museum.
2: Great. Well, to start, um, uh, I am a museum educator. But I ended up there because, um, well, to be honest, my mother was a teacher and said, whatever you do, don't go into education. <laughs> and I think both my sister and I were like, right, 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 let's not do that. Um, but yet, We both ended up in education. Um, She's a librarian. I ended up in the museum realm. So we just went a different route. But we realized pretty early on that there's this whole trajectory, lifelong learning. And for me, museum education was this wonderful, magical place um, that I I just needed to understand more. So over um, the 25-plus years I've been in the museum field, a lot has changed. But in the particular – let's see – 10, 15 years, uh, I think the biggest changes come about as museums are asking the big question, what is our purpose? Mm -hmm. What is our value to communities? And in what way does learning impact that value? Or is it the value? And when we think about museum learning historically and traditionally, Mm -hmm. often what comes to mind for people is the blue-haired, you know, uh, lady giving the the very stern tour at the, art, you know, the art museum, <laughs> in which, you know, they're they're lecturing for an yeah. hour with a, a group of children or adults, and um, that while it was kind of traditionally what I entered, I learned pretty early on that what I loved about learning in museums wasn't being told what to think; it was the discovery. Um, that can happen. And so I think about 10, 15 years ago, there started to be a shift. This question began to take place. But around 2009, it was cemented by some incredible research um, that was coming out in the education realm, but that was immediately dovetailed and latched onto by the museum field specifically. Institute for Museum and Library Service published a document called Museums, Libraries, and 21st Century Learning. Um, some of your friends actually mm-hmm. were part of that publication. So, Kin K. I I think Valerie was a part of it as well, Marcia Simmel. And what they were saying is if we're going to really think about museums in the 21st century, why don't we capitalize on the magic that they can bring to learning, um, which is the the, the the what they were referring to, of course, is the four C's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do we cultivate creativity? How do we create opportunity for curiosity in a whole range of ways? So um that was the question that I began to ask myself um and my team. um and around two thousand and ten, we decided that we would um, change drastically and we opened a center for creativity. Um, And with that came lots and lots of changes.
1: Uh, I find that so fascinating. And that is that, you know, that old kind of uh, traditional model of of, uh, museums, you go and you're told what the interpretation of any, any particular piece might be for an example and you go into very traditional education systems where teachers lecture um that i had not thought of that similarity in in kind of tradition until you kind of pointed it out to me but it's it's pretty profound i think and interesting but the way you've shifted uh your organization now to be a place of inquiry and exploration and i've seen it for myself it's really um so so exciting to see
2: the range of changes um, it, it, it of course what we started to do with education we actually had to strip away 80% of the programming that we were doing at the time that we made the shift because my boss asked me a very difficult question and that question was so we want to champion creativity how much of our programs currently are fostering <laughs> creativity and you know you, you can Don't say you, one thing, you can say one thing but When we started to really analyze and look at what we were offering teachers and and schools um, and our community, 80% of our programming wasn't actually asking them to think. We were doing um, far more come in, see a Monet exhibition, come down to the studio, and then and you might, you know, from a docent, learn about Monet and his life, and then you could come to the studio and make something that would look like a mini Monet, but what we weren't doing is we weren't asking people to think like Monet, question mm-hmm. and make, um, you know, these leaps of understanding around perception, what we actually see, and then um, what we actually feel about what we're seeing, which is what Monet did so beautifully, right? We we didn't ask them to think like Monet, to question like Monet. So once we realized we weren't doing that, we knew we had to make quite a few shifts. Um, and in a second, I'll talk more about the the work with the educators, but that was even in our galleries. If we're going to put up an exhibition of works of art, how do we allow for our visitors, the average visitor that comes to the museum, to begin that questioning and inquiry? And we called, we created something called connectors, and connectors are really just Um, engagement devices that help connect you between the artwork, the the person in the Mm -hmm. artwork. So it might be a puzzle that helps you to slow down and provides an opportunity for close looking, which is a fundamental of critical thinking. And the way we define creativity is critical thinking with imagination to generate new ideas that have value. So nearly everything we do needs to have some element Mm -hmm. of critical thinking and or imagination. So... On that note, what I
1: find interesting is, you know, a lot of educators as we began to shift the outcomes and vision for for school systems around a broader definition of success. You know, and that's content knowledge coupled with twenty first century skills that that you were talking about, that wrestling with are we really delivering on what we want or what we're saying our vision is? And that that's interesting how you all had to wrestle with that. Oh yeah. Education leaders have to do the same thing. Right. And that Sometimes we say we won't espouse this vision, but it's very difficult to go and make the dramatic changes that are necessary to really realize that new vision.
2: Well, and and to be honest with you, um, over that period of time, you know, there were the educators and the curators. And the curators, of course, are the they they're the ones that mine the knowledge and create new knowledge. And um, I think there was a deep um, schism between Mm -hmm. these two groups, as we began to explore um, what it could look like to engage, allow our audiences to engage in thinking while they also were still wanting to relay all this incredible knowledge Mm -hmm. that they knew was out there. We've come a long ways since then. We actually lost probably most of our curators over that 10-year period. And I think that's pretty natural for the kind of change we went through but what we eventually realized um which is you you will get this is of course when you want people to deeply engage in knowledge acquire acquirement you know you've got to get them curious. Mm-hmm. And we were we weren't front loading curiosity. We were front loading, you know, here's what you need to know if you don't know this, if you're confused by that, you know, and people felt stupid. They they felt like I don't know how to do an art museum. And so when you flip that and you make it about curiosity and wonder, then what people want is more. So then we scaffold the experience, but we definitely are prioritizing the wonder experience, the questioning, um, the way people automatically begin to engage with these objects versus us telling them what is necessary to think. So the the, the the role of the curator is not going away. It's just the way we work together to present that information has drastically changed, which is to go it to is, the— That um, is
1: relinquishing some control, though, right? Oh, absolutely.
2: Um, and that's— <laughs> no, And, that and I, you know,
1: I know that many of us have had that feeling of, you know, throughout our life going into a museum or— in some kind of class, you know, art appreciation or something, and being intimidated because we think mm-hmm. there's a very specific answer that we're supposed to get to <laughs> with Absolutely. regard to an interpretation of a piece of piece of art. There are a lot of similarities in education today, where we're, we're not, you know, the most 21st century, you know, really dynamic learning experience. Sometimes doesn't have a defined answer. Yeah, the learning is in the exploration, in the inquiry, in the the wonderment, like you, you used the word wonderment earlier, you know, that's where the real powerful mm-hmm. learning, um, you know, can can be reveal itself.
2: Well, and I think something we've debated in the museum field since then is this notion of, you know, the, um, the expert versus just the curious. And I think one of the challenges the arts have faced in this um, culture is that in order to be perceived as important and valuable Re- and relevant and relevant we felt like people had to you had to know we had to push this this scholarly um evidence we had to demonstrate how important it was um, so you see this in schools um, there was a movement called the dbae discipline-based art education which was to say it's as important of a discipline as all the other disciplines um, you see this in museums. The role of the you know, what I think people would say became the oversized role of the curator in in relation to other departments. but what what that was was trying to validate that this is an important field, an important um, place of inquiry. What we gave up, though, when we went far on that spectrum is that art has this incredible way of cultivating. Um, wonder, And, you know, the way we think about wonder is it's that suspended disbelief. You know, when you have a wondrous experience, you are for that brief moment, you're not exactly sure what you're seeing or experiencing. Um, wonder in nature, of course, can be a rainbow. Wonder in mm-hmm. art can be beauty, but it can also be the abject. It can be horror. It can be things that you just don't quite understand. Things don't come together and for that brief second, whether you're a child or a senior, you have suspended disbelief. And your mind immediately shifts to curiosity where you're just trying to figure it out. And that is the beauty of the learning, you know, experience.
1: Tell us a little bit about your your partnership. In light of that, your partnership with Ohio State University College of Medicine?
2: This particular program we do, with um, it, it started with second-year um, medical students at Ohio State University. and Now it encompasses um, a variety of different departments and divisions. But when we started the program, um, the dean of the college called and said, you know, second-year med students are at Ohio State University currently are the highest scoring students we've ever seen. Um, they are the in- incredible as far as paper. But by the time they're getting to their second year, they're experiencing something that is um, incredibly challenging for them, which is patience. And part of the problem is they are... Um, that they've been kind of taught that there's right and wrong answers and they were really good at right and wrong answers. They could test like nobody else, but diagnosing a patient is far more gray. It's far more like looking at a work of art than it is, um, you know, uh, analyzing and Mm -hmm. taking a test. So we started this program um, to really push on that particular um, thinking skill But what we realized is that cognitive flexibility was also going to take place. Um, We just didn't know quite how that looked. So what the the students do now is they're around a work of art. Typically, we have them run through a routine, a thinking routine, and together as a group— they begin to dissect and analyze. What are they seeing? What what you know? Just starting to pull the details, but then they begin to make interpretations. And what's fabulous is it's in that moment that here they all have this knowledge, and they think it's their their you know their worldviews or something that comes mm-hmm. into play to getting to what the right answer is about this work of art. But pretty soon, one of them will say, "You know this this reminds me of growing up in southern Ohio." And someone will say, tell me more about that. And they'll say, well, down there, I I remember the coal would be off the the railroad tracks. and, And someone else will say, oh, I grew up in Lithuania. There was a similarity there. And all of a sudden, they're making connections and creating understandings across their different disciplines and their different understandings and their worldviews that are so much richer than one individual could have done on their own. And one of the reflections that typically always comes up is that doing this exercise alone, I think I would have found that I I was curious about something, I, I enjoyed the experience, but it was the power of being with the group and analyzing and making sense of something Um, with others who have very differing um, backgrounds and experience that created a a far more um, powerful um, understanding of how our learning actually works. And and so it's that moment in which that's mm-hmm. what diagnosing a patient looks like, the power of having colleagues that you can go to, the power of being able to um, realize that it's not going to be the medical books alone that are going to help you get to that diagnosis, but how these people existed in the world, what their lives have been like, where they grew up, all of that information and data makes a difference.
1: So... Um- we, we love the partnership with you, and in fact, um, this will be our second year to bring yeah. groupings of superintendents and chief academic officers to the museum to go through this experience because we find, just like the medical students, the opportunity to really examine the way we think and the way we interpret what we think is occurring. You know, in education, and it's probably very true in, in medicine as well, that um we we rush quickly to, ha- mm-hmm. to answers, right, into oh, yeah. solutions, and sometimes that cre- that that rush to a defined uh, you know solution or answer, we miss some of the the nuances in a particular situation.
2: So something we learned pretty early on is that wow, we were really excited about the role the museum could play in catalyzing creativity in this community. Um, that we needed to really target a, a specific population and that were that was educators and um and one of the reasons is we felt that educators in order for them to bring this kind of curiosity and creativity to their classrooms they needed to find it for themselves again mm-hmm. and that's with leaders too um and for many of of the educators one of the projects We launched um, shortly after, after opening the Center for Creativity was called Making Creativity Visible because here we were getting all these questions about, well, what could creativity look like? And we had begun to research our own programs, but we decided to go out and really start to pay attention to when creativity is thriving in a classroom, what does it look like, sound like, and feel like? Um, well, we, we made lots of observations, mm-hmm. and we noticed that it was those educators and those leaders that were incredibly intentional about the kind of thinking they wanted to do for themselves that then allowed for the creativity to thrive in their schools and their classrooms. So I can give you an example of um, I- Emily. She's a, um, an art teacher in Bexley. She realized she needed to find wonder again and she Mm -hmm. needed to be much more transparent with her students about the things that she was curious about in her classroom. But on the other side, Mary, who's a um, principal in, in um, the Worthington School District, started to notice that her teachers were becoming incredibly intentional about wanting to create more space during um, indoor recess for their students to use their imagination. And so she realized, ah, imagination, we all need to find a way to tap back into that I need to do something as a principle that elevates the imagination and create a year of imagination um, and practice it myself mm-hmm. um, with um, the educators when we're together and also then um, find a way to message that to the parents in which she had hosted events and brought the parents in and had the parents do imaginative exercises as well. So it really was about intentional um desires to cultivate in that in themselves that then begins to to kind of grow the fertile soil for that to take place in a school.
1: It's hard to be an effective problem solver if you're not creative and curious. Yes, yes. Talk and, about that intersection a little bit.
2: Well, it's interesting because um, I think uh, creative leaders. Um, there's a a, um, a great article written by David Perkins out of um, Project Zero, in which he said, in in order for creative um, change to really take root in a learning environment, specifically, there actually needs to be three leaders for change. And w- once we started to like look through that lens very much we saw it. We saw it in our own setting, but we see it elsewhere. And those three leaders for change are first a visionary leader. And that is a leader who can imagine something, um, you know, five, 10 years out, and how it could look different, and has the ability to to weave a story around that vision. But that alone won't make systemic change um, launch. So what David Perkins realized is The other two leaders are critical. Um, One is a political leader. And that leader um, of creative change has to almost realize, okay, my role here is I have to begin to imagine and critically think about what are going to be the obstacles to this kind of change. And my specific um, uh, role will be to to block barrier, um, kind of talk through whether those are political leaders, whether they're um, school boards, or whether what mm-hmm. parents often can be a barrier to creative change taking place. How do I help to ensure that this launches? But the most important leader... Um, from this is what they call the practical leader. The one that um, teacher or educator or staff member who sees that visionary leader's um, vision and says, I got this. I know how to do I, this. I, I know how to do this. <laughs> I'm going to up it too. We're going to take it two, two steps yep. beyond where you could even mm-hmm. imagine. And that those leaders say, go. And pretty soon, that one leader feeds the next leader, feeds the next leader, and you have ten, twelve, fifteen of these, and it's ripple effects across a, a school. And so, for us, we realize that you know people often stereotype the creative leader as being that you know dynamic, um, you know visionary. And yes, you do have to have that, but without the other two kinds of mm-hmm. leaders, that change doesn't take place.
1: What's exciting, I, th- I think, about this work. Is how do we, you know, leverage these assets like the museum to really create conditions where students are 21st century, you know, lifelong learners and contributors mm-hmm. in our community. And I just see such power. So talk a little bit about I in this to. new environment, you know, how could school system leaders think about the broader ecosystem Yeah, to really support learning, not just young people, learning of young people in their system, but adult learning. Yeah.
2: So i I think one of uh, one of the challenges um uh, learning environments like museums have faced is that we've been perceived by the community as sites for field trips mm-hmm. and we have been perceived that way as field trips specifically around particular content areas and i i um i i think by the it's way it's field, to it's field
1: trips After the real learning has happened. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not (laughs) consequential. It's not. um, It's fun
1: fun field trips at the end of the year. Yeah,
2: it's awards. And one of the things we hate seeing is like where they will punish students um, if they somehow don't make the grade or, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And yet what we know about museum learning experiences is it can turn Um, someone's imagination. It can turn them into, you know, um, loving and and many of us ended up Mm -hmm. in museums. We weren't traditional learners. So, you know, it's always sad for us to see them not um, embracing all learners at the museum. But actually, I think all of my peers in the museums around Central Ohio will tell you, when we get marginalized as field trips attached to content, you are not at all um, accessing what museum what the power of of these kind of learning environments um, are are you know working on today. So let me just give you a couple examples. The zoo has been really, really intentional about. Um, their core goal, and their goal isn't for us to learn about, you know, um, all the animals and their habitats. It's actually to begin to change our behaviors and empathy around environmental science and help us to understand our role in, um, you know, uh, evolving uh, our practice. And so they have to get far more um, intentional uh, around empathy. They are kind of one of the great experts in our community around how do we build empathy skills in our students. They even host a high school um, event in which the whole goal is to to you know have the students go through a practice of creating something that they're so passionate about um, and they have such empathy around.
1: If we commit deeply to 21st century learning, which is the combination of content, knowledge, and skills – uh, with the 21st century skills that we know mm-hmm. are so important um, today, more important than ever, this thinking broadly about the entire ecosystem and place-based ed- education. Not only people tend to think about that right away as you know putting students into you know business and industry, and and there's significant value in that, obviously. But there's also this opportunity to really think about these other assets in your broader community and how they really can help you um, excite learning and have, you know, really cultivate the curiosity, creativity that we know are so important to cultivating empathy. So I'm going to transition for a minute because you brought up empathy before. Um, And you know that we have a portraitofagraduate.org website. And so because of that, we're able to kind of keep – the you know analytics behind the behind the scenes to determine you know kind of from a, from a you know we're curious right who's picking what competencies as they're mm. working through this portrait of a graduate yeah and we've seen over time it's interesting empathy has gone up to the top of the list mm-hmm. so it's consistently now in terms of a competency that all communities rural urban suburban you name it across all states even some other countries empathy's always in the top five now mm-hmm. and you know I think that's certainly an indication of what kind of what we're feeling um, mm-hmm. in society and that kind of thing talk a little bit about the intersection between curiosity creativity and empathy absolutely um, well,
2: early on, we even noticed when we were doing our research um, that as that report, that seminal report came out that creativity in this country is on the decline. And
1: um, that came out um, around 2010 as well. Um, and and, it, and uh, Newsweek had a, an article that came out right after that. It was called The Death of Creativity, yeah, which yeah. is a pretty powerful article.
2: Horrifying. <laughs> yeah. If you start to unravel Yeah, it, it. actually was horrifying. And, yeah. it, and in particular, it looked at, you know, since the testing culture in the 90s and all the things that were happening in the 90s. So um, the lack, uh, you know, the the move away from play, the, um, you know, passive media and the influx of that, you know, all these things started to have an immediate impact on creativity in this country. But what's fascinating, and recently I've been doing a lot more research looking at mental health declines, in particular teenagers. And if you begin to map those over, the decline that took place in the 1990s around creativity, you see it it, it it parallels. So we we see a, um, a almost immediate uh, decline in mental health, um, and in particular, uh, um, a raise in anxiety disorders. So there's this um, in- incredible um, package deal mm-hmm. that comes with the change in in our society. What we realized when we were doing the um, making creativity visible research, we were in classrooms and we were watching educators, is that the more an educator was very intentional about these kind of elements of creativity in their classroom. Um, so making more space for a uh, tolerance for ambiguity. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's not something we practice once mm-hmm. a year. We, we tolerance, Tolerating ambiguity has to be every day. And as they were doing more of that, as they were doing more um, wonder, curiosity, and questioning, more idea generation, what we found is the students and the teachers both began to gravitate towards, now there was more freedom, more room for ideas, but the ideas ended up being more socially motivated. And in particular, we were completely fascinated with um, this desire um, to have some sort of social impact
1: with Mm -hmm. the things they were creating and making. So we're coming to the end of our conversation. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about what kind of advice would you give mm. to school leaders as they think about the transformation of education systems today and this broader ecosystem that could really lend itself to accelerating that work?
2: Um, I, actually, that's a really great question. Uh, we've been doing this work now for about a decade, and I, I will admit it hasn't been easy. There were days that um, my boss... And I both kind of wanted to throw in the towel. And um a couple things we learned though in this trajectory that's helped tremendously. Is one, the the three leaders for change and mm-hmm. that our seats might evolve. Um and sometimes I was the vision leader, sometimes I was the cheerleader um, or the the champion, and then sometimes I might have been the practical that those things change. And sometimes it's other people in our institutions that will be those leaders too, mm-hmm. and not us. And we're just there to continue that support. The other thing I learned, though, is if you want to do this work, you do need to become um, curious, deeply curious about what this looks like for yourself, and understand what it means to you. Uh, I, I I realized almost within the first couple of weeks of opening the Center for Creativity, that the perceptions that society has around creativity are actually detrimental to us doing this work. And here as someone who had been in museums and in art all this time, I was realizing we'd done it to ourselves. You know, every time someone says, oh, well, look at you. Look how well you drew that horse. You're so creative. We were just instilling more and more of this belief that somehow creativity was attached to being able to draw well, which it's not. Creativity is the ability to have an idea and do something with it. I can tell you my colleague Amanda um, does more amazing work with Excel spreadsheets as her medium than, uh, you know, uh, she'll never need drawing. That is her medium. So she's very
1: creative with Excel Excel spreadsheets. spreadsheets.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) We all will need a medium, a way to push out our ideas. But what has happened in society is we've started to say somehow your ability to draw or paint um, makes you creative. And, And of course, those are just mediums to get your ideas out into the world. As leaders around this, we have to be able to articulate what is creativity and what is it not. We have to um, be really clear with that. We have to dispel these myths that, you know, he might be born with it, but she clearly was not that we all have innate ability to foster, but we have to practice it. It's more like um, your physical well-being. Mm -hmm. If you don't work out, yeah, you're not going to be a a marathon runner. But the more we practice, the better we become at, at this particular skill. So my advice, I think, to leaders often is, know what you're getting into, know what it means to you personally, how has it impacted you personally, be able to tell those stories, and be able to dispel what it is not, so that you can be that champion, um, and help people along in the process. And then realize, as you grow that community, you may actually take a step back and let some of those others um, step in.
1: And I would just add to that, that as school leaders embark upon Kind of redefining success, uh, reevaluating what it means to do school well around 21st century um, competencies and skills around your portrait of a graduate. I would say really think about the broader ecosystem in your own community mm. and how do you leverage and really partner with them to make this kind of learning um, you know powerful and real for young people and even for your own employees and, and educators within your system. You know and really leverage those assets um, to help you realize that dream.
2: Yeah. Make sure that everyone gets to play in in this um, realm of 21st century learning, not just the learners, but staff, our parents, um, our community. If you begin to shift and think about these kind of um, lifelong learning institutions, rather than um standoff experiences, but as catalysts for your own imaginative um creative uh life, that it begins to shift what use they have to you and your community. So we um every day say we don't want you to just visit
1: the art museum. We want you to use the art museum. Sydney, thank you so much for your time well, thank today. You for thank you me. for your partnership. Uh, You've been just an amazing thought partner in this work, and we just appreciate you so much. So thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks. We couldn't do this work alone, so together we do it better. At Battelle for Kids, we believe 21st century learning is not limited to just schools and school districts. Community partners like the Columbus Museum of Art are key to a school system and a community's thriving ecosystem. I'd like to thank Cindy for her time today and for all her support of our shared mission. And I'd also like to thank everyone at the museum for the great value they add to our broader community.
0: The EdSpark Podcast is a production of Patel for Kids. Battelle for Kids collaborates with school systems and communities to realize the power and promise of 21st century learning for every student. Go to bfk.org to learn more. The music heard in this podcast is On Fire by Sasha Yende, copyright 2019, and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All other content in this episode of EdSpark 21 is the intellectual property of Battelle for Kids. Other podcasts and blog posts from Battelle for Kids can be found at bfk.org.